This is episode 122 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Katie Holterman, and I just love this episode because if you read the title, you might have thought this was the most boring topic ever, <laughs> and maybe that's maybe that's just what I thought when Katie wanted to talk about this topic, but um, it's a great conversation. Katie actually makes it not as boring and dreadful <laughs> as it may seem, so anyways... Um, Katie is the Vice President of Clinical Education and Compliance for EnduraCare Acute Care Services. She's board-certified specialist in swallowing disorders and is a certified dementia care instructor through Dementia Care Specialist. She serves as a member of the Professional Development Committee for ASHA's SIG-13. She is a member of ASHA's Healthcare Economics Committee and served as an advisor to the American Medical Association CPT Healthcare Professionals Advisory Committee. Having nearly 20 years of clinical experience, Katie has both provided clinical care and held leadership roles in a variety of clinical care settings, including acute care, hospital, outpatient, sub-acute rehab, long-term care, and private practice. Katie has presented nationally on topics including dysphagia, health literacy, and professional issues in rehabilitation. Her passions in the field of SLP are dysphagia, specifically of neurogenic etiology and regulatory issues surrounding the rehab professions. And thank you, Katie, for this conversation. It is awesome. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for joining us about this miserable topic. Oh, it's so blunt. I love it. Yes. Yes. You know, so many people are going to listen to this like this is the most boring material, but we all have to know it. And Katie's going to talk about it in a not so boring, miserable way. So, all right. So now that I gave that fabulous introduction, Katie, tell the people who you are. Apparently I'm the bearer of all bad news is what I am. So... Um, yeah, I am that weird speech pathologist that loves reimbursement and coding and documentation and all the stuff that nobody likes. I'm that one. And I, and I pair that with my love of dysphagia. And so together I have people that dread hearing from me. So there we go. (laughs) Awesome. I, I love the start of this episode already, Katie. All right. Well, let's let's dive in. What should we start with? Well, I think so I think the best thing that we should probably talk about is the question that I get all the time, which is, "Hey, how do I know when I'm doing evaluation versus treatment? How am I where am I coding for an eval versus treatment? Where is that fine line?" And the answer that I always tell people is that actually it's not such a fine line. We think it's this this crossover and it's not. If we take a step back and we really think about what we're doing in a session, we know exactly how to code. The problem is I don't think we want to code this in the way that we do. So if you're sitting with a patient and you're monitoring them, and by monitoring, I mean, you know, hey, how's your diet going? Hey, are you eating enough? Hey, are you, let me just sit back and watch you eat. 
none of that constitutes treatment. You know, if we're really looking at a patient and we need to assess how they're doing with a diet and we're looking at upgrading and assessing, that's truly more of an evaluation. And I think we need to step back and say, am I really doing skilled treatment? And if I'm evaluating a patient, then I need to do the full evaluation. You know, I can't walk into a room and say, oh, I think you'll be doing great on thins today. Let's do that trial it for four seconds and say, there's my treatment. I I think what I struggled with was I had a supervisor one time that I don't know where it was coming down the corporate chain from, but it was like, you don't need to do a full eval, just build the 15 minutes and then you can do diagnostic treatments. And I was like, what is that? You know, I'm young, naive. I think it it wasn't at my CF, I think my first or second year. And they're like, oh, well, you just, you know, you, you ask all these evaluation questions, but it's during a treatment session. And I'm like, Sounds a little backwards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Something you know, yes, if it yes. smells funny, yeah. most of the time. Um, and I, I would preface that by saying that diagnostic treatment does exist, but we have to look at it within the context of what we're actually doing, and and you you need to really be that person looking from the outside saying, if you're truly doing an evaluative session, if you're assessing, if you're looking at goals and how you're upgrading your goals and, and truly, you know, putting all of the elements into an evaluation, why wouldn't you be doing an evaluation? You know, if you're doing these quick kind of reassessments, but it's within a true treatment session, by all means, go ahead and bill your treatment session. But I think it's those quick little visits that I just never quite understood how a therapist walking in for five minutes could say, oh, that was a session. (laughs) Because I know from a patient side of things, if somebody walked in and did a five minute procedure on me, I, I would be very hesitant to pay that bill. And that's what it comes down to. I think there's a lot of gray area too, between what's considered like making our clinical judgments during a treatment and altering the treatment plan versus a full eval. You know, like I know people ask all the time, like, should I do another eval? Because I basically tweaked a bunch of things just using my clinical judgment. Correct. And at at that point, no, you know, I mean, we're, we're using clinical judgment all day long, you know, and, and whether we're working with dysphagia or voice or aphasia or our tick on a, on a child, we're using our clinical judgment. And so just because you're using clinical judgment and your expertise and, and your knowledge base as to why you went to school, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an evaluation. But if you're truly going through the full spectrum of a clinical bedside eval, bill for your evaluation. And I would probably say, along with that, I am not saying bill an evaluation every day. <laughs> Yes. Because I've had yes. that question too. Is oh, I'll just re, you know, bill a reval or an evaluation code. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know, look at what you're doing and make sure what you're doing is is what you're billing for. That's what all. That's what coding and reimbursement really is. Is you know, make sure you're coding what you're doing. All right. So what's next? What's next? Let's see. Group swallowing. Okay. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. That's a dun, dun, dun. That's a big one. So groups, how to bill for group swallowing. That's the, the question I get all the time. Usually it's with in the, within a context of, hey, I'm doing a breakfast group or hey, I'm, do, I'm watching a bunch of people in a dining room. That's going to, I'm going to bill for group swallowing. So 
group swallowing is one of those things where, first of all, um, it, it's it really varies on insurance company on if you can even consider a group swallowing code. Some insurance companies will will say A-OK. Some say you have to bill it under the group treatment code. Some people say you can only bill it under dysphagia. Some insurance companies say, you know, no way. ASHA has a great resource on this. If you go to ASHA.org and under reimbursement, practice reimbursement and Medicare, they have a whole page on group treatment and what constitutes group treatment and dysphagia is within that also. If you're watching people in a dining room, again, that doesn't constitute group treatment. Now, that being said, I have had several instances within my own career, and I've seen other clinicians very effectively perform a group swallowing treatment session where they're actually utilizing group methods and you know um, effective dysphagia treatment methods within a group setting. Group settings are great. They're motivational for patients. Um, And I do think that there's a time and a place for them. But again, you need to, if in doubt, check with your payer to see if that's going to be paid. Yeah, I think that's question number one. I think we could debate it back and forth a million times if it's good or beneficial or not. But the fact of the matter is for a lot of people, it's not even an option. So. Well, that's a whole other. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Well, that's always my first, my first response when people are like, well, can I do this? Should I do this? I'm like, are you allowed to, is it even an option in your area? So exactly. Exactly. Yes. Always check with your payer. It's just the number one rule. Awesome. Okay. What else do we want to talk about? Fees? Yeah. Okay. So fees, I'm interested in your perspective also, because I know obviously you do fees. Yeah. What are, are you hearing a lot with fees as far as questions to you about either bio, using it as a biofeedback tool, because that's a question I get all the time, and billing for it in the context of, hey, I have my SLP friend, you know, time, time factors. Oh, I, I can't possibly scope the patient, feed the patient, do all this, so I need to have an extra set of hands. It's an extra SLP because I don't have a tech right? So many people don't have, you know, PT and OT are so lucky they have these rehab techs that help them out all day. Speech world doesn't usually get that. And so we bring in a trained clinician, you know, who's clearly, if you're just assisting, you're not working at the top of your license. So anyway, so I've just, I'm curious, how does that work in your world? Do you get that a lot? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes. So two parts to your question. So the, f- the first part is I rely heavily on the treating SLP. So my understanding is that the endoscopist is to, is to build the 92612 code for the amount of time that the scope is in the nose. So the, as the treating SLP can bill the treatment code up until that time the scope goes in the nose, then they can't be billing the time or when it's in the nose, then once it comes out, then they can bill after. I really use my treating SLP. I don't think of them just as as a tech or as an assistant or as a helping hands or anything. They're heavily involved. So we talk about different textures. We talk about different amounts. We talk about different compensatory strategies. We talk about family involvement. So there's a lot of information that I get from the treating SLP that I wouldn't be able to get just from an assistant or a tech. Awesome. Yeah, because I think... You know, doing the doing the test is is important to do kind of a, a standardized protocol, 
it's important to stick to a protocol. However, to get really individualized information, you need to know a lot more about the patient and what they're capable of, what their natural environment is, what their desires are, what their wishes are. So Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Because that, that's, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I'm, oh, good. you know, okay. <laughs> you're, on the, the you're on the right path. Oh, you're on the right path. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it wasn't really a test, but <laughs> thanks, Katie. <laughs> but I'm just, I, you know, I'm always interested in how how, what the perception is, because I have walked into facilities where, especially in the facilities where, you know, because you're in a perspective where you're coming in as a consultant and the staff SLP is there and, and really providing the wealth of information. And absolutely in that regard, you know, you're, you're providing the diagnostic procedure and scoping, and that would be the correct bill. And then the treatment bill could certainly lie within the, the treating therapist. I think what drives me bananas is like when, you know, I, this, this is just from my experience. Like I would send a patient for a modified and the patient would come back with patient can have thin liquids if they do a right head turn with a chin tuck and a double swallow. And it's like, do you know anything about this patient? There's no way on God's green earth they're going to be able to do this or be willing to do it, you know? So I just have a very back and forth dynamic with the treating SLP. Well, is this patient willing to do this? Is this patient capable of doing this? Will the, pa- will the family reinforce this, you know? And I, I'm not going to recommend a million strategies if it's not going to happen anyways, because then it's just a stupid study. That means nothing. Well, exactly. And then, and then it's a waste of a study and a waste of a bill and all of that. Absolutely. And I, and I think that the treating therapist can provide so much information and value to that session. I think where some therapists run into trouble is when the person who is performing fees is billing for the fees procedure and billing for a treatment session. And then the treating therapist is billing a treating session and that, right. But, but you'd be surprised at how. I'm not surprised. No, but. (laughs) (laughs) And how often I'm always surprised and maybe, but um, at how often that happens because, you know, essentially it's double dipping. We don't want to do that for the patient and for the billing system, but And I think to your point, if the therapist who's performing fees is billing for treatment, it takes away the value to the treating therapist who's really there and and involved with that patient. So you want to make sure that, again, it comes back to billing for your time appropriately and billing for what you're doing and really demonstrating your value. And so the treating therapist who knows about that patient much more than somebody who's walking in, let them get the value for what they're doing in their procedure. Yeah. I I think the gray area, which I don't find it very gray, but I've had this conversation with a few people before and they're like, well, I took the time to then tell them the results of the study. And, you know, and then I kind of did counseling because I had to tell the family about it. And it's like, I'm sorry, but that's still part of your evaluation. All wraps up. Like you don't just do it and that's it. Like it's, yeah, I don't know. So, no, it's it's a hundred percent. That's and and similarly, we get the same. Similar similarly, we get blah, 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 blah. we get the same. Um, we get the same question on MBS all the time. You know, oh well, I I did an MBS, um, and then I build a treatment session because I educated the patient, and I'm always like, well, what you you were just gonna throw barium at the patient and walk away? Like <laughs> it's not. You know, so education is all rolled into that procedure. And it's, if you look at the code, it's built into the code. So it, there's a lot that I think people are, 
I don't think it's malicious most of the time. It's just, you know, lack of knowledge. But, But when you, again, just kind of stepping back and going, what did I really do? What would I really have done anyway and and looking you know from the broad picture so yeah fees mbs all of that education counseling going over treatment methods those are all wrapped into your your evaluation and then we get it you know and i have a lot of therapists who will say to me but i only get x amount of time to complete this procedure and how can i you know justify my time and for that i always say well then you need to go back and talk to your administrator or your director and say 30 minutes is not enough time for a modified barium swallow. Or I've had people, I've had people tell me, oh, I get 10 minutes, 10 minutes for an MBS, 10 minutes for fees. I'm like, that's not enough time to say, hey, my name is Katie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know know there's some fees companies I've heard that have said they have to be in and out in 45 minutes. So that includes like setting up all the food, doing the chart review, getting the patient, doing the whole, I'm like, what? Sometimes it takes that long to get the patient off the toilet. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's the time factor is a big thing. And, and, you know, with those codes are not timed. So it's one of those, you know, it goes back to that scary P word that we all hate, which is productivity. Yes. So yes. yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and so the other part of your question, Katie, and I don't know that I, I don't know that the answer to this about using fees for biofeedback, how you bill, I think to my understanding is it's just a modality. So it's just you bill for a treatment and it's a modality that you use during your treatment. Correct. So that's what I would. Yeah. So anything that fees or any other instrumental tools um, used during therapy, those are considered tools of therapy. So like e-stim is always the example that I give. You, You usually do not bill that separately. Where the confusion gets in is there's a, there's a biofeedback code that can be used for physical medicine and rehabilitation, but SLPs, Number one, really shouldn't use that. And, and even for, for like SEMG, you know, that's not something that you would use separate and distinct. It's a tool modality to your point that you would use in therapy. But I've had therapists who during sessions are scoping patients as a biofeedback, a visual biofeedback and saying, well, that's my treatment. I'm going to charge fees plus treatment. And that's a really sticky situation because it's not, you're not using the code as it's meant to be. So is that like a PT code or something? Well, they're actually, so these therapists are actually trying to bill a code for fees and then a treatment, a dysphagia treatment code in addition, because they're utilizing the fees as a biofeedback Gotcha. instead, but that's not, you know, again, going back to looking at the code description, that's not what the code is meant for. Gotcha. Setting the record straight here. All right. (laughs) Hoping to. Yes. All right. What's next, Katie? Let's see. I would say, oh, so the MBS edits, that's a big hot topic right now. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, and doesn't this happen every so year, every few years it comes back up again? Well, yes and no. So these, so every, every so often we have these new codes, new edits, new, new things. So the codes that are the NCCI edits for Medicare Part B those get put into place and they're they're updated and modified every quarter. These edits okay. are what you can bill with what procedure. So an example of a very famous edit in the speech world is cog and speech treatment. Not being able to bill those on the same day, that that there's always buzz around that. What happened recently in 
Jan- effective January 1st of 2020, there were new NCCI edits that were put into place that are saying that the MBS code that is coded for the actual MBS procedure by speech pathologists can't be billed on the same day by the same facility as the radiology code. So <laughs> it's one of those things where- it makes so much sense, yes. Oh, doesn't it though? Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of issue as to why that's occurring, why that there was some buzz in the PT and OT world for some edits that came into play January 1st also. Ash is working very, very closely with CMS to try to solve this problem and and, and um, hopefully get it resolved because it, it can be a big issue for those SLPs that are working in a hospital setting and are trying to build this outpatient procedure And then radiology is not able to bill the same procedure on the same day. As of right now, the guidance from ASHA is to continue billing as you did. So lucky for speech, the speech portion of that code is a column one code, which means it gets paid first. That's, you know, yay for us. We we never get a yay for us. So that's a good thing. So if it's denied, it probably would be the radiology portion that would be denied. But again, the the guidance from ASHA at this point is just to continue to bill as you always have been billing. Hopefully it's going to get worked out on the, on the back end. But that's, that's been kind of a hot topic that I've heard in the past couple of weeks since that edit came into place. So. Yeah. How, does, how does that affect the, like the mobile MBS fans too then? It's a great question. That's a great question. I'm, you know, and I, and I assuming, so if the radiologist is billing off of a separate group, it probably doesn't affect them because it would be within the same facility. So gotcha. for okay. that company, it probably, you know, for those types of companies, it probably wouldn't affect it. It's amazing mainly for the hospital systems where the radiology, the radiologist is working with it, you know, for the system. So it's, the bill is coming out of the same place. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Let's see. What else do we have? Do ICD-10 coding. That's always fun. That sounds so fun, Katie. All of this is so fun. We should have done this at night so I could have had wine or something, <laughs> not at 10 in the morning. Cocktails <laughs> always seem to make coding a little yes. easier, I know. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. How's not, yeah, cocktails and coding sound much better than, Oh my I guess, gosh, Teresa, you just gave me my title for a next presentation. Yes. <laughs> yes, do it, Katie. I'm, I'm <laughs> cocktails and coding with Katie. I got a great vision. Asha 2020. Let's it. do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. That, that will probably be the only way to fill the room. Actually, side, side story. This is actually really funny. We had, I had done a presentation in, at Asha this past November and, you know, you get your, your times and my co-presenter and I look at it and it's Thursday at 630 at night. And we just looked at yes. each other and we went, well, we're going to have to serve wine. It's the only way to get people yeah, there. of course. And literally it people is. were trickling in, you know, we had a couple people, a couple people. And I looked at them, I said, we are not serving wine. I, I don't know what you're thinking. You probably best turn around. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, somebody needs to sneak in those little like four packs of wine. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. what were we doing? Oh yeah, ICG-10. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you get me talking about wine. I get all excited. Common question, what do we do about, how do we code? What's the best ICD-10 code to use? This is especially, I'm getting a lot of questions on this in PDPM starting. There's been a lot of misinformation on not being able to use the R codes for in relation to PDPM for those clinicians in skilled nursing facilities. That's 
not the case. You can't use that as a primary diagnosis code for those patients, but you can certainly use it as you, as the speech primary diagnosis. So let me take a step back and just explain that a little bit. So with PDPM, you have a primary diagnosis for the patient. That's the reason for this, the sniff stay. And the primary diagnosis would relate to pretty much the patient as uh, as a whole, not just particular to their specific discipline that they're being treated for. And so there's this misconception that the R code R13.1 series, um, which is the dysphagia code, can't be, that can't be a primary diagnosis for a patient because when it's coded in the MDS, that would not, the R series can't be coded in the MDS for the patient for the primary reason for the stay. But for a speech evaluation or a swallowing evaluation, you need both a primary diagnosis and a treatment diagnosis. And the R-series can be used, obviously, for that purpose. The treatment diagnosis is, there's no reason you wouldn't be able to use the R-treatment, the R-series, because that's what you're treating. That's exactly what you're treating. So again, it always, you with an ICD-10 code, you always want to code what you're going to be treating. And so the R1 3.11 or R13.1 rather series, that would be the usually the best code. If it's a dysphagia following a CBA, then the I69 series is going to be the, the better option probably. You can always pair that with the R13 series. If there's any underlying oral motor dysfunction, then R13.11 is the recommended one. And then if there's if it's a feeding disorder with no underlying oral motor dysfunction, so for example, like a texture aversion of some sort, the recommended code for that would be R63.3. There is some talk of a specific feeding code being being proposed right now. Um, and that's in the works, but it's not, nothing is, is set in stone right now. Um, but that would be a nice, probably a nice way to, to have kind of a separate and distinct feeding code for, um, for the patients with, you know, strictly feeding disorder. Um, because a lot of times what's happening now is it's being coded as dysphagia when it may not be specifically dysphagia. So and that's, you know, for that kind of that pediatric population. I've had patients or I've had I've had therapists who have said to me, you know, this patient is not eating. They have severe dementia. They are holding food in their mouth. They are um, having issues forgetting to swallow, um, lots of cues. Which code do I use for that? And again, I always say, take your step back, look at what you're doing. I think in those cases, we need to really take a look at, is this a dysphagia or is it more of a cognitive issue? And so I always would recommend if, if we're really looking at more of a cognitive behavioral issue, really know to differentiate that between a dysphagia. Remember what a true dysphagia is. And, and you know, it, we're looking at an anatomical physiological issue rather than a behavioral issue. And so if you're looking at a quote unquote dysphagia from a cognitive dementia standpoint, take a step back and say, what am I really doing? Makes sense. Yeah. What else? Oh, my little plug. Again, I'm not, I'm not speaking on behalf of ASHA. I don't work for ASHA, but I volunteer uh, heavily at ASHA. So my little plug is if you haven't 
gone to the ASHA website, if you haven't looked through resources that ASHA has put out, www.asha.org and go to the practice reimbursement page, there is so much information in regards to how to code, what you'll be, you know, what are the, um, what are the proper methods of going about coding and documentation and, you know, it'll outline specific scenarios. There's tons of articles, both in the leader and just on the web pages. I think that in general, clinicians don't use the ASHA web pages enough um, as your resource. And we're paying those dues on a yearly basis. I'll get on my soapbox and then I'll get right back off, I promise. But if we're paying the dues, you know, when, we, when I hear, you know, what is ASHA doing, blah, blah, blah. Well, we're, we are ASHA. We're paying these dues on a yearly basis. So use the resources that are provided. And if you don't like the resources or if you want more, advocate for that. You know, say, hey, I need, I need more resources on this topic. You know, I, I, need, I need some assistance in how to bill and how to code and, and who can help me. I think that there's a lot that can be done within our professional organization. My soapbox code is for Asha to leave well enough alone when they start switching the web pages around. <laughs> I, I have agreed, like a million, agreed. I have a million links bookmarked. And every time I go, it's like, this page does not exist anymore. I'm like, what? <laughs> so please, Asha, put some redirect links on. Tell me where I can find it. If it's been removed. Sometimes then I'll find out, oh, well, this this doesn't even exist anymore. It's been rolled into the practice portal. And I'm like, oh, my God. Agreed. So, agreed. I, box, no, but. I get it. That that web page sometimes makes me a little nutty, too. But it is there. You just have to dig it. But, yeah, agreed. Um, and then the other thing is on the both on the ASHA web page and just on other resources that are out there, really take a step back. I, I think the number one thing from in my line of work where I'm auditing documentation and looking at, you know, does this really support what you're doing? That's one thing that I think speech pathologists in general are just not good at. We are, we are not good at documenting exactly what we did, why it's skilled treatment. You know, we may, we may get one of those things. We may say, all right, I did this with the patient. And that's all well and good, but, or even more so the patient did this, right? The patient swallowed effortful swallow six out of 10 times. Fan freaking tastic. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what does that mean in a world of skill? Because as an auditor, if I'm looking at that going, oh, great, I'm so glad the patient did that, but the patient could have done that with their, their daughter who's watching them and saying, hey, do this. What skilled treatment did you provide on a daily basis? Make it clear in your note, because if you are charging a bill for dysphagia treatment, that code distinctly says, you know, treatment of swallow dysfunction and treatment is evidence-based. It's, you know, skilled. And if you can't clearly demonstrate that in your note, by all means, if I were an auditor, I would deny that charge. And what does that mean? It means you as the clinician should be stuck with that bill. I think I, we did an episode just kind of on ethics and stuff um, with Jess Kolaski and just talking about, you know, if you think about your, we'll just throw out a random number. If what you're billing is a hundred dollars a session, did you really provide a hundred dollars worth of value to this patient today? And if you did, does your note reflect that? And I think when I, when I think of things that way, I'm like, oh man, yeah, 
Exactly. I think that, that, you know, again, it's working. You may have, but did you write it down that way? Exactly. And I think that a lot of times people are just, well, of course I did. What, you know, that that's wrapped up in it. And it's, it, if it's not clearly described and again, it's, it's a few parts, it needs to be described not only what the patient did, but what you did. And I think we just lack that combination. PTs and OTs are, are terrible at it too in general, but I think just, you know, rehabbing, we're not taught enough in grad school about how to document to support skill. We're just not, it's, it's a failure, I think, of the system. Yeah. I, I had a course last year and I brought in somebody to talk about documenting and things like that. And I just was reading through the reviews and everyone was like, this was wonderful. This was fantastic. I learned so much. And then one person was like, this was a waste of my time. I thought everybody knew how to do this. And I I ended up talking to her after and I was like, I'm glad you said that. I wish that were the the case, you know, but unfortunately you were the only one in the room that knew this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you wish that every review said that, right. You wish that it was just common knowledge, but yeah. But again, it goes back to supporting, you know, documentation is so important, but I think that people don't understand that it's important to support the bill that you're doing. You know, if I go to a mechanic and I pay, you know, they give me a receipt for $1,000 for my car, you better believe I want an itemized receipt. And I want to know exactly what they did to support that bill. We are no different. Makes a lot of sense, Katie. I try. (laughs) Cocktails and coding with Katie wasn't so terrible today. Minus the cocktails. Perfect. (laughs) I could try to (laughs) coffee and and coding. It's just not the same ring to it, but... Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not it's not the most interesting topic and I get it, but I do think it's one of those things that from a day-to-day perspective, if we're if we're you can't be passionate about dysphagia practice and not not know what you're actually doing to support your practice. Sounds good. All right. Anything else? I don't think so. I'm just what's going, next? Going through my list. Let's see. Oh, you know what? There was one thing I just wanted to talk a little bit about going back to that MBS and fees and the fact of, can I bill for a treatment session in, a, in addition to that? So one thing that I think we all have to remember is that for, especially for Medicare, and again, I always refer to Medicare. I, I am well aware that there's other insurance companies out there, but Medicare is the king of the castle. And so if you are abiding by Medicare rules, you essentially would be abiding by every, you may be more strict than other insurance rules, but you know that you are, you are really kind of following the most stringent rules. So that's why I always refer to Medicare uh, regulation. So if you're going to be billing 92526, which is the code for dysphagia treatment, and there's no established plan of care, then really you're not able to, you're, you're against Medicare regulation. So if you're trying to bill 92526 on the same day that you're billing an evaluation code, but there's been no plan of care created, how are you, if you're not, if you haven't created your goals yet, how are you billing 92526, Ooh. right? Yeah. So I think that that's one thing that um, people need to remember when they're looking at, okay, how can I bill this education, quote unquote, education session? in um, as a treatment code well you might want to think twice if you're if you're thinking about from a coding perspective and, and from a medicare regulation perspective wow okay yeah I, that that i did not did not know that katie so <laughs> now i need a drink okay 
There you go. Perfect. Now, now we're supporting. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it, it makes sense. Yeah. And I see that from both sides of the you know, both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I know, I know, I, again, there's, there's regulation and there's, again, the, the boring billing and coding. And then there's also the practicality of, you know, how am right, I, you right. know, cause I think what I'm thinking of is like these rural facilities where someone might go out and be, you know, the person that does the eval, does the treatment that day, you know, and, and that they might not ever get back out to that, you know, four hour away building ever again. Exactly. So that's kind of where I think that is a disadvantage or a disservice, I should say. But yeah. And I think, you know, I, it's funny that you say that only because it, that's such a hot topic with, you know, in, in the rural setting. And I've, I've heard it for some time growing up in New Jersey, practicing in New Jersey, densely populated area. I always kind of thought, oh, you know, how realistic is that? You know, the, these rural areas. And in my work now, I work for a company, it's contract rehab company and, and with a lot of rural area in it. And I'm seeing it firsthand and seeing that. You're like, where am I going? Exactly. Who lives out here? Yeah. <laughs> but the reality of that uh, dilemma is really, it, it's real. And I, I didn't, have an appreciation for that in my own practice for quite some time. And I think that that's one thing that when people are saying, well, you know, they, that needs to be taken into perspective. I don't think that it's necessarily something that is intentionally not taken into perspective, but I think that for those of us who maybe have not worked in that environment, it really is just kind of off the radar. Um, it's not something that we truly have a good understanding about until you, until you're there. How does that, Katie, how does that affect like, like the outpatient therapist then too, where the patient might come in and they do the eval, they do the fees, they do the treatment all in one felt swoop. And that's a, it's a great question. I mean, that's one of those, it, it's the same thing. I mean, that, that really is the outpatient Regulation. So the Medicare regulations are from Chapter 15, um, Section 220, which is the outpatient Medicare regulations. So really, it's stemming from that population, not so much the inpatient world. So that's really where it's coming from. Is is exactly exactly that population? Yeah. Don't send me hate mail. You guys send to Katie. I'm not the one that said this. Okay. <laughs> I'm changing my address after this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, just send it uh, to CMS. I'm fine with that. Yes, you can do that. yes, yes. We'll forward them all to CMS. There you go. Okay. <laughs> all right. I, uh, anything, any other questions that you have? I don't know if I had anything else on my... Yeah, I think we covered everything. Well, this was good, Katie. This was, this was tolerable. <laughs> I think that's the nicest compliment anyone ever gave me about coding. <laughs> it was tolerable. It was eh, mediocre, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so mean today i'm sorry no this was wonderful katie it really was Perfect. so thank you thank you for clarifying just a lot of the you know gray areas that we all have to face every day and yeah so thank you so much this was wonderful anytime i'm glad thank you so much for having me yeah do you have any final thoughts anything to share with the people just take a step back think about what you're doing make sure you're you're billing what you're doing documenting what you're billing and all will be good in the dysphagia and billing coding world. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. 
Thank you so much, Katie. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.